Good morning. It was uh, August day, not unlike today, that I was on vacation a few years back and I received an urgent phone call. And there was a young woman, a Christian, who had been tangentially involved in the church I was pastoring at the time. And she had this urgent request from me. She said, you know, my fiance is in town. He is a, uh, he travels a lot. He's a faculty member for NYU. And we have this kind of narrow window where we could uh, get married. So she was asking, could you please marry us? Now, you know, I try to be pretty flexible in terms of weddings as a minister, like, because I've learned that the Bible doesn't talk much about weddings. It actually doesn't tell us how to get married. It doesn't say how, to, how you should do a wedding. So I try to be very uh, broad in, what I, in, in, what, in the way people want to get married. I'll do it. You know, I, I will marry people jumping out of airplanes, or I will marry people going underwater if, if they want to do that. So it's all fine with me, but I have one rule. And I told this young woman on the phone this August day, I told her, this is my one rule, and that is I want to counsel you before I marry you. I kind of made this deal with, with God. I made a promise to God, talking about vows, that um, I would only marry someone if I was counseling them first. So I need seven sessions with you in engagement counseling if I'm going to marry you. And, you know, it's kind of hard... Um, sometimes these situations, because you don't want to throw water on the fire of love, you know, and people are often very excited. And she was saying, you know, this is such a great guy. I said, well, tell me, tell me a little bit about the relationship. We have a kind of a tight time frame here, but maybe we could do it. You know, maybe we could do this counseling bit and, and get it done. So uh, tell me about uh, your fiance. So she's talking about this guy, telling me how great he is, how great the relationship is. And then she says, and he is exploring the Christian church. He's exploring the Christian faith, but he still has questions. And immediately when she said that, my, my stomach tightened up. Do you know why? Can you see why from what I've told you so far? Um, I really, in this kind of a situation, I, I, I had to kind of explain something to her. I could tell her, uh, you know, again, I'm in a position, this, is a, this person might be coming, coming to my church. Um, so I'd like to tell you what I said to her. But in order to tell you that, in order to, to make that understandable, we have to come to an understanding of what marriage is. What is it that we're talking about when we're talking about getting married? And what does it do to us? Now, if I were to ask you, if you're here this morning or, or watching and... and you're a secular person, you have a kind of a secular mindset, and you say, I'm not going for all this faith stuff. You, you probably have a view of marriage that comes from the evolutionary paradigm. And under the evolutionary explanation, marriage is something that's been ingrained in us. The reason why we find it in just about virtually every culture of people through history is because the female of a species wants to propagate her genes through her children. And so she wants security for her children. The male of a species of an animal wants to propagate his genes through sex. And so this arrangement developed, it evolved, where the female animal of a species would trade long-term commitment. She would give sex for long-term commitment. That would be the trade-off. 
a long-term commitment from the male of the species. Now, I don't know if that's convincing to you as an explanation for why we have marriage. Maybe, if, you're, if you kind of have that mindset, maybe that's convincing to you. But I'll tell you the main problem, one of the main problems of this. The problem, friends, is that no other primates arrange their social life around pair bonds. None of them do that. And we tend to think that, oh, we see marriage in, in uh, the animal kingdom like two birds sitting on a branch. But none, we, we actually don't have pair bonds in the way that we have marriage in the animal kingdom. In fact, Stephanie Kuntz, kind of marriage historian, she wrote a big book called Marriage a History. She's kind of a respected uh, kind of marriage authority. She puts it this way. Kuntz says this, quote, In fact, when you look beyond superficial similarities... We find nothing in the animal kingdom that remotely resembles human marriage, unquote. So what Kuntz is saying is that we think we have these ideas that there is marriage. There isn't. There's nothing, nothing that remotely resembles what we're doing in marriage, in human marriage, with its pair bond. So... You would think if it were kind of evolved, something evolved in eons and eons, we'd have some, some semblance of this if it's such a great idea in the animal kingdom, but we don't. That to me, friends, is evidence that this is not, marriage is not about propagating our genes, but it's something more about being made in the image of God. Please stand with me if you're able. We're going to be reading from Judges chapter 16. Uh, I guess I need my phone for this. We're going to be reading about the romantic relationship of Samson and Delilah. And so I'm going to be reading in Judges chapter 16, verses 1 through 21. And I'll be reading from the ESV version if you want to follow along. Or it will be printed on your screen as well. Again, this is Judges chapter 16, beginning in verse 1. Samson went to Gaza, and there he saw a prostitute, and he went into her. The Gazites were told, Samson has come here. And they surrounded the place and set an ambush for him all night at the gate of the city. They kept quiet all night, saying, let us wait until the light of the morning, then we will kill him. But Samson lay till midnight and at midnight he arose, took hold of the doors of the gate of the city and the two posts, and pulled them up, bar and all, and put them on his shoulders and carried them to the top of the hill that is in front of Hebron. After this, he loved a woman in the valley of Sarek, whose name was Delilah. And the lords of the Philistines came up to her and said to her, Seduce him and see where his great strength lies. And by what means we may overpower him, that we may bind him to humble him. And we will each give you 1,100 pieces of silver. So Delilah said to Samson, Please tell me where your great strength lies and how you might be bound that one could subdue you. Samson said to her, If they bind me with seven fresh bowstrings that have not been dried... And I shall become weak and be like any other man. 
And the lords of the Philistines brought up to her seven fresh bowstrings that had not been dried, and she bound him with them. Now she had men lying in ambush in an inner chamber, and she said to him, The Philistines are upon you, Samson. But he snapped the bowstrings as a thread of flax snaps when it touches the fire. So the secret of his strength was not known. Then Delilah said to Samson, Behold, you have mocked me and told me lies. Please, tell me how you might be bound. And he said to her, If they bind me with new ropes that have not been used, then I shall become weak and be like any other man. So Delilah took new ropes and bound him with them and said to him, The Philistines are upon you, Samson. And the men lying in ambush were in an inner chamber. But he snapped the ropes off his arms like a thread. Then Delilah said to Samson, Until now you have mocked me and told me lies. Tell me how you might be bound. And he said to her, If you weave the seven locks of my head with a web and fasten it tight with a pin, then I shall become weak and be like any other man. So while he slept, Delilah took the seven locks of his head and wove them into the web. And she made them tight with the pin and said to him, The Philistines are upon you, Samson. But he woke from his sleep and pulled away the pin, the loom, and the web. And she said to him, How can you say, I love you, when your heart is not with me? You have mocked me these three times, and you have not told me where your great strength lies. And when she pressed him hard with her words, day after day, and urged him, his soul was vexed to death. And he told her all his heart and said to her, A razor has never come upon my head, for I have been a Nazarite to God from my mother's womb. If my head is shaved, then my strength will leave me, and I shall become weak and be like any other man. When Delilah saw that he had told her all his heart, She sent and called the lords of the Philistines, saying, Come up again, for he has told me all his heart. Then the lords of the Philistines came up to her and brought the money in their hands. She made him sleep on her knees, and she called a man and had him shave off the seven locks of his head. And she began to torment him, and his strength left him. And she said, The Philistines are upon you, Samson. And he awoke from his sleep and said, I will go out as at other times and shake myself free. But he did not know that the Lord had left him. And the Philistines seized him and gouged out his eyes and brought him down to Gaza and bound him with bronze shackles. And he ground at the mill in the prison. And this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Please be seated. Okay, we are three chapters in on Samson's story. We are joining him now, three chapters in. And where do we find Samson now? And the answer is far, far 
away. Samson is in Gaza, you notice that. Now, Gaza is the farthest place south. It's the farthest place away from the kingdom that God is building in Judah. So he's way down south. Even today, you know, the name survives in the Gaza Strip. So he's, but he is in the farthest south of all the Philistine cities, the five great cities of the Philistine Pentapolis. He's like, he's like these people out here. So if you can imagine... Actually, you know, this is pretty good out here. I think you guys have it right. <laughs> this is a nice place to be. But just imagine you were Philistines, okay? If you were Philistines, this is where Samson would be, very far away. And that's where he is spiritually. So we have a kind of picture geographically of where Samson is, very far away. Because he has found that life is easier as a gifted outlaw than as a real leader. It's much easier to live as a gifted outlaw, just living off your gifts, rather than taking real responsibility for the people of God. And in the process of living this new life that he has, he's made a lot of enemies. So all over Philistia, in every Philistine post office, there is a poster of Samson. Underneath it says, wanted, dead or alive. All the way out there with those folks, there are, there are these posters that say, wanted, dead or alive. All over and it says, we'll give you this much money if you bring Samson in. He has enemies all over the place. He doesn't care. He's doing what he wants to do. He's living life as he pleases. But he's, he's made his way that far south to, to Gaza, far away from the kingdom. And in his personal life, you'll see he's, he's very cynical about love. You pick that up from the passage? His relationships have not worked out at all. His personal love relationships... And he even tried marriage at one point. That was a fiasco. And so now he's very cynical. Now he's given up. Something's kind of been lost in his psyche. Now his life is all about the casual fling. And you can tell that from verse 3, right? He'll go to bed with a girl, but he will not wake up with a girl. <laughs> no, not Samson. That's what thwarts the Philistine lords. Right? They said, I know, we'll wait for Samson till the morning, then we'll get him. Samson's not going to wait till the morning. He's not going to stay with a girl till the morning. Why? Because you know, in the morning, that's when things get weird with a girl, right? That's when, you know, she might want to cuddle, right? Or she might want to have coffee with you or something. Or she might want to, God forbid, she might want to exchange phone numbers. <sighs> So not Samson, no, he's not going to be caught there in the morning. So they wake up, he's gone. And so this is Samson's love life now. He's disdaining relationships. But we know, don't we, that relationships have a way of creeping up on us. And so before we know it, Samson has fallen in love with one of these casual flings. And her name is Delilah. Now, you recall, if you kind of heard the last sermon uh, that I gave about this, that the author of the book of Judges is setting up a contrast for us between the great model couple of Aksa and Othniel and the kind of worst judge in the book, Samson and Delilah. And the author has set up this, this kind of contrast, this contest between the great love and the kind of worst love. And you can see this even in our, in our passage today, topographically, right? Othniel loves a woman from the highlands of Judah, 
from the hill country of Judah, the high place geographically. Samson chooses his woman, you see, from the, the valley of Sorek, right? So even, even topographically, we see that Aksa is the model, right? Delilah is kind of like the, the anti-wife, right? That's what's going on here. But friends, I think from this passage, we can understand a lot about marriage, a lot about what an intimate relationship does to us. So I want to look at it with you. And what I want to do today is go through with it, go through it with you. Is even if this, this particular relationship is going downhill, it's in the downward spiral, nonetheless, it can teach us about relationships and what marriage is, what marriage does to us. Marriage is the great revealer, the great revealer of things in us. And so what I want to do is this, let's just look at this. I think we can, we can see three things in this passage that are revealed through marriage in Samson and Delilah. Okay, so let's go through these. What will marriage reveal in us? Because it always does. Intimate romantic relationship. Number one, a marriage will eventually show the different motivations that are there in your spouse. Marriage will show you the difference in, in your motivations, the different motivations that are going to be there. And it only comes out with time. Okay? This is not something that you see at the beginning of a relationship. And so when young couples come into my office, they're very excited about getting married and they say, this is so great. This relationship is wonderful. You know how we know this is so great? Because we tell each other everything. We tell each other everything. And it's different from these other relationships. And, and I want to say to them, well, yes and no. You know, I appreciate that this, this relationship for you may be different than all the other relationships you've had. But don't mistake the euphoria of your initial connection with really coming to know someone over time, really peeling back the layers and seeing how somebody ticks. That only happens with time. And you're not seeing it right now. You might think that you see it, but you're not seeing it now because there are things in the beginning of a relationship that obscure the different motivations that you have. They actually obscure it. So maybe you have common interests. You say, oh, we love to go to the same place, or we, we, we love the same music. And you have these things that you share in common. You think, wow, I really know that person. Well, you don't. It doesn't say anything about the person's motivations. Or maybe you have sexual attraction with this person. And you, that makes you feel like you're becoming one. Again, doesn't really tell you about the person's motivations. Or maybe there are successes that you admire in each other's lives. You say, wow, I, I really appreciate what this person has done in their life. And it makes you feel like you're on the same track. But you don't know that yet. And with time, eventually the motivations will be revealed. And that's what happens in verse 5. When it comes out how Delilah was really motivated. And what motivates Delilah? It's financial security. That is what at base, at base level, that is what is motivating her heart. And that is why when the, when the Philistine lords come, you look at verse 5. They say, we're each going to give you 1,100 shekels, actually in the Hebrew, shekels of silver. Now that's 1,100 shekels of silver times five. So there's five great Philistine lords. 
That means 5,500 shekels of silver. Friends, that is an unimaginably fantastic amount of money. That's what's on the table for her. And that is what she decides to surrender the relationship for, that money. Because it would mean for her, this isn't just, this isn't just setting up Delilah for a few years. Like, okay, I'll be okay for a few years. No, this is setting her up for life and her children's lives. She has children. She will never, ever have to worry about any financial matter ever again. To complete, complete financial security. She has just stepped into the life of the elite, the ultra-rich, with this deal. And so this, we find, is what really motivates her. That's what comes out with time. Now, what happens? What happens, let me tell you what happens usually in a marriage when it finally comes out that you are motivated differently. That there are different motivations in your spouse than you knew before. What happens is usually a shouting match. And usually what gets shouted is this. You've changed. Right? You've changed. You're not the person that I was dating. You're not the person that I married. Well, you know, maybe there has been a change. But a lot of times, friends, it hasn't been a change. It's just that time has revealed the heart. And when that happens, it doesn't have to be fatal. It doesn't have to be fatal to a marriage when those different motivations come out. If the marriage understands sin and repentance and forgiveness. If the, member, if the people in the marriage understand sin and repentance and forgiveness, it doesn't have to be fatal point in marriage. And this is what we learn in Christ. This is why there is so much hope, why I have such uh, great expectations for Christians who are in marriages. They have the resources to deal with that time when the motivations come out, they're different. If a marriage can go in that direction, these things that we learn through Christ, in Christ, from Christ, then it can be great. Are you prepared for that moment in your marriage for the revelation of motives? Because people who are prepared know that's when they, they roll up their sleeves and the real work of marriage begins. The real work of intimacy begins. But that's number one. Are you prepared for that? Number two, verse nine. An intimate relationship, a marriage will reveal the secret of your strength. You know, Kay Lawson Younger is a scholar, and he asks a very thoughtful question. He says, what, what do you think Samson actually looked like? What was Samson's appearance? You know, in our minds, because of like movies or pictures that we've seen and just the way that we think, we think of Samson as this muscle-bound guy, right? Like he's an Arnold Schwarzenegger-type character, and he's just bulging with muscles everywhere he goes. He's a huge guy. But Younger asks the question. It's a very good question. If that were the case, why were people all around so adamant about finding the secret of his strength? What would be the big secret of this guy if he's so big? Right? It's a good question. Now, you know, he did stuff that was beyond what muscle-bound guys do, right? But still, you know, there wouldn't be this great thing like, what's the secret? What's the real secret for Samson's strength, you know? So Younger suggests he's a guy, he was probably just an ordinary-looking guy. 
Yeah, it's a very, very good thought, actually. Probably just ordinary looking. That's why people didn't know what the secret was. That's why it was a secret. But anyway, however Samson actually looked, it is true that with time, your secrets, the secrets of your true strengths are revealed in a relationship. And this, again, is an involved operation. It doesn't happen quickly. It takes time. It doesn't, it's not there at the beginning of the relationship. And so we see in verse 7, verse 11, you know, there are many false answers that come out before the true one comes out. It's what I call diverting layers in a relationship that, co- that come out until you get to the, to the real source of the strength. But when you do, you know, that is a point where you can give the great gift of a relationship to your spouse. When you do, when that comes out, when you... When you are experiencing the astonishment that someone might actually love you, that someone might see you more than what everybody else sees and actually still love you, when you're in the midst of that astonishment, your spouse has the ability to give you what nobody else can give you, and that is seeing your strengths through another's eyes. That's what's supposed to happen if the relationship were spiraling upward here. That's what would happen when the strength comes out and your wife shows you your strength. You know, the Philistines saw a lot of things about Samson. They didn't see what Delilah saw here. And this is a great gift of intimacy. She could, she could take the true strengths of her spouse and glory in them. And that's the question for us as married folks. Are we glorying in our spouse's true strengths? When those finally get revealed in a marriage, and we see what other people can't see, do those gifts meet with appreciation in the spouse? Are you meeting your spouse's strengths with appreciation? Are you glorying in the places where he is really strong, in the places where she is really strong? But that's number two. Unfortunately, it's not happening in this relationship. It's the opposite. But number three, verses 16 through 17, Marriage will reveal where you are truly vulnerable. A wife will get to know where you are truly weak. Eventually, this will happen. Eventually, as I say here, all his heart, all his heart will come out. Eventually, you will know what makes your spouse, where your spouse is truly vulnerable. And it's going to happen it can't not happen, is the point of this passage. You know, you look at this story and you say, how come Samson is so stupid? You know, can't he see through this? I mean, she's doing this over and over again. Can't he get it? That's not how a relationship works. He will reveal himself. It will happen. And it does happen here. And it happens in layers. You know, see, I've been talking about layers. You could see this. This is a great picture, actually, in this passage about how a relationship actually works or doesn't work, there are layers that come off, and they come out, you know, verse by verse here, they're getting closer and closer to the truth. Each of these different answers that that Samson gives her has some element of truth in it, doesn't it? Verse 7, there are ways like he is like any other man. Now, the rope part, you know, that, that wasn't really the case, but there are ways like that he is, he is like every other man. You know what he's saying? Samson is saying to her there, you know, I seem strong. To you, I seem like I'm invulnerable. But there, is, there are ways 
which I'm just like any of anybody else. And then verse 11, the never been used part of the ropes. You know, the rope didn't matter, but the never been part, that was a truth about Samson. There was something about Samson that had never been. In this case, you know, he had never been shaven. So that part was true. Then verse 13, it comes out, it has to do with his hair, right? Didn't matter about the loom. They're talking about a weaver's womb, a weaver's loom there, excuse me, that, that he's getting woven to. That, that wasn't important, but the hair was. So you see how different pieces of the puzzle are coming out here in the relationship until eventually, verse 17, the sacred truth comes out. I'm a Nazarite. I'm a Nazarite. And so my strength comes from a particular relationship with God. And there's the sacred truth. His strength comes from a certain relationship that he has with God. And, you know, this is a very painful truth for Samson. You realize this, right? Because Samson had step-by-step trampled over every Nazarite vow. Samson, for those of you who don't know, as you go back and read in the law, that the Nazarite was one who had been devoted to God in a certain way, had a certain, established a certain relationship with God of devotion. And yet we see in Samson's life, he violates the Nazaritic vow. In, in one place and another place, you can go through the story and see. So he's, he has turned his back on his dedication. He's turned his back really on his relationship with the Lord in every way except one. There's one thing left that Samson has clung to. There's one thing left about his relationship with God he's held onto and he has not surrendered. And it, it is this, not cutting his hair. And that's the one thing left. It's not really as much about the hair as it is about the last remnant of his Nazarite vow. He's, he's basically holding on to God by a hair. How's that, Paul? <laughs> he's, he's holding on by a hair. Now, friends, this is a crucial moment in a relationship. When it really comes out where you're really vulnerable, when your partner finds where you're really vulnerable, here's the question. Will she be able to safeguard, to caretake that truth? Will he be able to be one who holds on to that truth and caretakes it? Or will he exploit it? You know, so what's the reaction, those of you who think about your own relationship, when it comes out where your spouse is really vulnerable, what is your reaction? Is it a dismissive reaction? Do you say, are you kidding me? Like, you are some kind of strange beast, you know? You're from another planet, you know? Or are you disdainful? Is your reaction not cutting your hair? That's the stupidest thing I've ever heard in my life, Samson. Grow up, Sammy baby. You know, is it that kind of a reaction? Or do you say, you know, this is strange to me. This vulnerability in my spouse, this is strange to me. But 
I'm going to, I, I see how this is all tied up in your relationship with God. And that this issue for you is tied up in your relationship with God. And I'm going to make a place for that in my life. Now, if you have been married for a while, some of you have not been married for a while, maybe not gotten to this point. Some of you have been married for a while. Some of you are thinking back on the marriages that you had. And, and understand this. This is difficult. Don't, don't underestimate how difficult it is to be the caretaker of your spouse's vulnerabilities. Don't underestimate that. It's hard. Why? Because usually the place where you are vulnerable is the place where you're most annoying. <laughs> right? The place where you actually are vulnerable is often the place that creates a trial for your spouse. Like maybe even, even in, in difficult Maybe he has a sexual difficulty. And what does that do? That creates a problem for you in physical intimacy. Or maybe she has a problem with self-image. And that's the one place that embarrasses, him, embarrasses you the most in public. Whatever it is, usually, very often, where you're vulnerable creates a trial for your spouse. So this is difficult. Can you see your job as accommodating that vulnerability? Can you say, this is my job to make a place for this in my life? Just imagine that this was instead Aksa, instead of Delilah. Imagine if this great reveal had happened before Aksa. What would she have said? Instead, she would have said, listen, Samson, okay, we're going to make sure that your hair never gets cut. Let's answer your calling. Okay, let me empower you to fulfill your Nazarite vow. That would have been Aksa. But instead, what we see, verse 19, verse 20, Delilah does just the opposite. This last part of himself that belonged to God, that he surrenders to Delilah. This last spark, he has one last spark that belonged to God. This little spark. And she reaches out. She snuffs it. She uses it to torment him. Even in his sleep. I don't know how you read verses 19 and 20, but to me it seems like she's tormenting him in his sleep. He hasn't even woken up yet and she's tormenting him. With so even in his sleep she's tormenting him. So you see what your spouse does with your vulnerabilities, it makes all the difference in the world. And this, friends, is what I was thinking when I had that phone to my ear on the beach that August day. I was talking to that young woman. This is what I was thinking. Are you sure? Are you with someone who can caretake that vulnerability in you, which is your need for the Lord? Your vulnerability is your need for the Lord. Are you with someone who can caretake that? That's why my stomach was tightened. And what I said to her, what I said to her was, look, this sounds like a great guy. I'd love to meet him. Why don't we bring him in? Let me talk to him. Let me see if there's some way to introduce him to the Christian faith. Maybe there are some obstacles that could be removed 
to bring him to embrace Christ. Let me do that. Let's do that. But I cannot marry you on this time frame. I said to her, I said to her, knowing what marriage is, I cannot put you in that danger. And you know, it was a very cordial talk. You know, we had a very nice, friendly conversation. We talked for a while, but we hung up. I never saw her again. No new person for my church. But you know, I sleep very well at night. (laughs) So this is what marriage is. This is what it's about. This is what it does to us. It's the great reveal. Now, I know we're in all different places in our relationships. Some of you yet to begin a relationship. Some of you in the midst of it, in the thick of it. Some of you looking back on it, you're wondering if you will even have another chance at love. We're in all different places. But here's something that you should know. This author tells this story in the book of Judges to send a message to the Israelites. This story is told to the Israelites to say this. If you persist in your idolatry and in your syncretism, you will end up grinding a mill in a dungeon instead of turning back to your first love. So you see, Samson's failure in relationship here was a call to Israel to turn back to their first love. God would be their oxa. God was trying to tell them, I know your strengths. I know your weaknesses. I will caretake them. I'm the one who can be your caretaker of your true deepest vulnerabilities. And friends, that is true today. Wherever you are in your relationships, you do not have to miss out on the true marriage, the true wedding to come. And that's why we come to the New Testament and Christ says, I'm your bridegroom. He is there to take take care of your places of vulnerability. He knows exactly where we're weak. You, you think about your life and, and, the, and the time when you were felt most vulnerable, most exposed. Christ would caretake that. And he does it right here at this table. So what we're going to be doing now is coming to that table to receive his care and to receive what he has done for us so that we might be covered. So come now as I'm, as I'm going to invite us. And let Christ show you that true love, that true connection that will never fail you. Would you please stand with me now?